and welcome to Catch COVID, a podcast about investigating the complexities of COVID-19. I'm your host, Sarah Salanga, and thank you for tuning in. Dr. Joy Doan's interest in the intersection of faith, science, and society is a thread woven consistently throughout her career, which includes a PhD at the University of Wisconsin at Medicine and Medical Microbiology and Immunology, postdoctoral research in immunology at the National Jewish Medical and Research Center in Denver, Colorado, and nearly 16 years on the faculty at Bethel University. She has developed her interest in the intersection of Christianity, cell biology, and public health by designing an interdisciplinary course on HIV, AIDS, and other integrative activities on topics ranging from natural theology to vaccination from our other courses. From 2017 to 2019, she was a SCIO visiting scholar in the Oxford Interdisciplinary Seminars in Science and Religion, bridging the two cultures of science and the humanities program, where she began research on the implications of the molecular mechanisms of the evolutionary model of creation for our understanding of God's goodness. Thank you for joining me today, Joy, um, for this is the first episode that I'm doing. And before we jump in into talking about vaccines, I just wanted to discuss a little bit about Interfaith Youth Corps. Um, for the past couple of months, you and Tandon have been working with me and along, along with other Bethel students, like with projects surrounding vaccines. So how did you get involved with Interfaith Youth Corps? So Bethel actually has a pretty strong history of collaborating with Interfaith Youth Corps on a variety of interfaith ventures, mm-hmm. um, specifically some faculty members from philosophy and English and history have done collaborations in the path, past collaborations in the past, uh, working a lot on curriculum and other types of program development. And so Marion Larson from the English department passed along this opportunity Mm -hmm. to me, knowing that as an immunologist, that I have a strong interest in vaccine uptake and in vaccine hesitancy. And so in May of this 2021, she sent the program announcement to me. Um, shortly thereafter, I connected with Tandon Brecky, and he and I decided that collaborating as a team to mentor a cohort would be a great approach. And, you know, from or from the beginning of May, we submitted our proposal. In the middle of May, we found out that our proposal had been accepted during finals week, and we had oh, a cohort wow. by June 1st. Yeah. Wow, that's definitely, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, I've been, like, really happy to be part of, like, that whole cohort and just seeing the work that everybody's doing in their communities has just been really inspiring. Um, but moving uh, into talking about vaccines... I think for me, one thing I've seen, like just in like social media and even here on campus is like people are having trouble understanding how vaccines work in general. So I guess that is the question is how do vaccines work? So broadly, vaccines are like training camp for your Mm. immune system. Okay. So when we get sick for the first time with an infectious disease, whether it's COVID-19 or measles or the common cold or strep throat, Mm -hmm. um, our immune systems are kind of like taking an exam, like taking a final exam for the first time without having studied. So vaccines are training. They're a way for your immune system to study in a low cost, low risk environment. So most vaccines will take a piece of whatever that infectious agent is and introduce that into your body. And it it's low cost and low risk to your body because these 
pieces of the organisms. Mm -hmm. They can't cause disease. They can't copy themselves in your body. Um, They can't spread to other people generally. So it's very safe. And then your immune system says, oh, I see this thing and it's foreign Mm -hmm. and I'm going to develop a response to that. But it's not, it's going to be a strong enough response to be a training response and a protective response, but you're not actually going to get the disease. Okay. So that when the actual disease organism comes around, your body says, oh, I've studied this before. I have seen it and now I can get it out of your body hopefully without you even noticing. Oh, that's really interesting. And I, well, actually, like, I think about, like, getting the cold, uh, like, common cold every year, and I'm like, we get, you know, the vaccine for that, and I think I've learned that the vaccine for, like, the common cold changes, like, every single year. So that would, the influ, that's the influenza vaccine. Okay. Yeah, so that, like, at present, there's not a vaccine for the common cold. There are lots of people. The kind of virus that causes the common cold or the most common kind of virus is mm-hmm. called an adenovirus. And at the moment, no vaccines for that. But people are very interested yeah. in studying those. And mm-hmm. I've actually seen some conference presentations where there are promising early results from animal models. But mm-hmm. the influenza vaccine, that does change. It changes every year. And that's because of the genetics of the influenza virus. So that particular virus is even more subject to mutation than yeah. SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. Okay, And for that reason, the vaccine has to be swapped out every year. Okay. Another reason we do a flu vaccine every year is that the incubation for influenza is really short. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, even if your immune system has been trained to recognize a virus or a bacteria, yeah. it still takes a few days for it to ramp up and have an optimal response. So if the incubation period for the virus is shorter than that window for your immune system mm-hmm. to kind of kick in, then you need fresh immunity every year. Okay. Wow. That is great to know, actually. Um, you kind of mentioned this before talking about like how vaccines are low cost, but in general, like how safe are vaccines? So vaccines are among the most rigorously tested health intervention that we have, if not the most rigorously tested, because most of our vaccines are given to children. And we, of course, want to protect children from any kind of harm from the outside. And vaccines are unusual because we ask people who are otherwise healthy to let a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist stick a needle in their arm And it might make them feel lousy for a couple of days Mm -hmm. in the interest of future protection. So given that it's an intervention offered generally to otherwise healthy people, the standards for safety are exceptionally high. Uh, And so the vaccines that we currently have in use are extremely safe, you know, broadly across all the vaccines that we utilize. And And they're constantly being improved as well. So like the pertussis, the whooping cough vaccine that's given now is extremely different from the one that I received as a child, because the one that I received as a child used to cause in a fair number of people a pretty big inflammatory response, lots of arm swelling and pain, some fevers. And the new formulation is much milder, but still just as effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Hearing all of this makes me think of like, getting vaccinated is not only for you, but it's also for your like surrounding people around you. So um, 
and I've heard, like, especially surrounding COVID, people are worried about, like, the process the vaccine was made. It seems like it went by, like, really quickly and, like, people are just test experiments. Um, so how long in general does it take to create a vaccine and does that vary depending on the disease? Yeah. Um, so first, you said something that I just want to highlight for a minute, which yeah. is that vaccines are not just about individuals. They're about community health and public health. Right. So you hear a lot of people talking about vaccines kind of the way we talk about, um, you know, aspirin or the way we talk about umbrellas, right? It's like something you put up to protect yourself or to make yourself feel better. But uh, a much better analogy that I've read in a number of places is that vaccines are more like fire retardants mm -hmm. and a pandemic organism is like a fire. And so we need to put the fire retardant everywhere to kind of quench the forest fire of okay. the pandemic. Uh, and so vaccines work more like that. Now, in terms of research and development, a typical Historically, a typical vaccine development timeline is 10 to 15 years. Oh, wow. Uh, and it consists of preclinical work that's done in um, very, very limited model systems and then moves into animal systems and then moves into some very early human trials just to assess safety before it moves on to bigger trials. Mm -hmm. uh, and so each one of these steps can take you know, anywhere from one to five years. And then by the time you have enough data to submit to the FDA for approval, that approval process can typically take as much as six to nine months. Mm -hmm. Now, because of the emergency situation of the pandemic, there's an accelerated timeline that can be utilized that moves things along more quickly, but also does not compromise the rigor of the process. So one way that we're if you can call us fortunate in the middle of a pandemic, one way that we're fortunate is that coronaviruses have been around and we've known about them and broadly how they work for 50 years. So there are, there are lots of other coronaviruses out there. Wow. So if I'm understanding this right, COVID isn't like a new thing. So the specific, the SARS coronavirus 2, which causes COVID-19, mm -hmm. had never emerged in human populations before and had okay. never been observed in nature before, probably because it had never jumped to human populations right. before. But there are many other coronaviruses that infect humans and other animals. So as a family, we've been aware of coronaviruses, what they look like, how they work, how their infectious process happens for about 50 years. And so what that means is that once we knew that COVID-19 was caused by a coronavirus, we could apply everything that had been learned about them for the last 50 years to this situation. So coming in, if you're trying to develop, a, if you're going through a typical vaccine development process, you might not know what piece of the virus is going to be a good vaccine candidate. Um a good example of not having that knowledge is the fact that we don't have an HIV vaccine, even mm -hmm. though it's been 40 years since HIV became known to the medical community. There are other factors that have prevented the development of an HIV vaccine, but one of them is that 
we didn't have any pre-existing knowledge to apply to that scenario. But here we have 50 years of pre-existing knowledge that tells us that, oh, the spike protein is going to be the best target for the vaccine. And that takes a bunch of time off. Um, you know, and then additionally, we have a worldwide situation. So we have unprecedented collaboration and we have unprecedented support from various world organizations and world governments. Uh, that have enabled various steps of the process to move along faster. Um, so, for example, early trials moved along faster because it's really easy, apparently, to recruit yeah. participants mm -hmm. if you're in the middle of a pandemic and your life is right. You know, strongly affected by what's happening in the world. Whereas if somebody wants to develop another vaccine for, say, whooping cough, people are like, well, why should I volunteer for that? I've got an existing whooping cough vaccine. Nobody around me has whooping cough. I don't know anybody who's ever had whooping cough. So I'm not going to do that. So it was easy to recruit volunteers. Um, the FDA and the equivalent organizations in other countries accelerated their review process. So instead of working their regular days and going through data for six to nine months, they've had teams of people who have been working essentially around the clock, evenings, weekends, you name it, to go through this data faster. And then when you have an emergency situation, we have kind of a special category of FDA approval called the Emergency Use Authorization, or the EUA, which enables a medication or an intervention like a vaccine to move forward without what we'd call a biological licensure agreement, or what you'll hear people talking about as full FDA approval. Uh, but in order to even get the emergency use authorization, there's a very stringent exploration of the risks and benefits of that intervention. Uh, and you can tell that the process is taken seriously simply by looking at what happened in April of 2021 as the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was launched. Right. And then as it became more widely distributed, there were reports of about a half a dozen women who had developed an unusual kind of blood clot. And as soon as that happened, they paused the rollout to explore what was happening with that. So the process is taken very seriously and it's very closely monitored to ensure that the benefits are always outweighing the risks. If we, if that ratio ever turns and the risks start to outweigh the benefits, everything gets stopped. Okay. Well, hearing that has been like really reassuring because I like everywhere you go, I think a lot of people have like said like this vaccine, it just came out of nowhere. Like how like safe is it if it like just was developed and COVID just happened last year? Like how is it possible? Um, and I think that kind of actually leads into my next question is like, how effective are vaccines? Because you talked about full FDA approval and like, you'll see, I think with some vaccines are like 90% effective or 99.9% effective. So how's that percentage even determined? Yeah. So efficacy is a measurement and it really depends on the clinical study that's done, what efficacy actually means, but it's a population measure. It's not a measurement for an individual person, but it's a population measure that sort of set. So if a vaccine is, has 90% efficacy, that means that there were 90% fewer cases of the disease in the vaccine group when compared to the control group okay that definitely makes sense because i was like i don't know how these percentages are like taken and like um certain vaccines seem to be more effective quote unquote than others 
Um, but you also kind of mentioned this, like, way in the beginning, talking about the different types of vaccines, but, like, how, like, how, what determines the frequency of vaccinations? Mm. So, the frequency of vaccination is complex. Uh, so, there are some vaccines out there that really, if you have a healthy immune system, they're kind of one and done. So, the measles vaccine is an example of that, where currently, uh, children today, if they get the recommended recommended doses, they get two doses of the measles vaccine, one when they're about 18 months old, so between 12 and 18 months, and then one right before kindergarten. And that series confers lifelong immunity. And the reason for that is that the measles vaccine is a kind of vaccine called a live attenuated vaccine. And so live, meaning it's an actual virus, but attenuated, meaning it's been weakened so that it can't cause disease. But because of that, it creates an immune response that exactly 100% mimics, trains your immune system in the ways that would happen during a natural infection. And the measles virus is also very stable genetically. And so it's not going to change over time. Um, you know, there are instances where individuals will discover that their immunity has waned and they'll wind up getting a booster shot. But for the most part, one assumes that if you've done your two measles shots as a kid, you're immune to measles for life. Then there are other kinds of vaccines where the immune responses by nature of either the pathogen itself or of the technique that's chosen in order to be both safe and effective, um, where the immune response just wanes over time. And that's really typical for an immune response to uh, what we call immunological memory to just decline over time. It's a natural phenomenon that happens, you know, in, in every case, pretty much. So some reasons that you might need a booster is that the safest vaccine that is also effective creates immunity that just doesn't last forever. And mm -hmm. that's really typical. Um, so that's why, for example, you get a, it's recommended to get a tetanus booster every 10 years or so. Um, you know, because that's not live attenuated. It's what we call a toxoid. So it's just a little bit and it comes in and every 10 years or so you get a little refresher course, right? It's kind of like continuing ed for your immune system. That's right. what boosters are. Okay. Um, you know, the influenza vaccine happens every year, partly because you need to have robust immunity already happening when you come into contact with the flu virus and because influenza viruses are highly genetically unstable, meaning they change up a little bit every year. Um, and in fact, the flu vaccine typically ha immunizes you against three or four different influenza viruses every year. Okay. Uh, because we make predictions about what's going to happen in the northern hemisphere based on what the southern hemisphere flu season has been like. Okay. And then the southern hemisphere will plan for their next flu season based on our experience. Mm. So right now, the southern hemisphere is very interested in what's happening up here for the flu season. And then they'll make vaccine plans for next year based on what happens here. Okay. And this kind of reminds me of like things I've been seeing on the news, particularly about now COVID vaccines have just been like regulated for younger children. Mm -hmm. So this makes me wonder in general, are vaccines geared towards like adults or young adults or like, does that have to change when it comes to like vaccinating children? Mm. So Vaccine development is going to be based on the people who are 
at most risk of having a serious harm from an infectious disease. So the vast majority of recommended vaccinations happen before a child goes to kindergarten. There's another series that happens uh, when they get ready for middle school, for example, and a couple others that pop up in adolescence. But the vast majority of immunizations happen before a child ever goes to school. And that's because historically, vaccines have been developed in response to childhood diseases that cause significant harm or mortality for kids. So, you know, initial vaccines, like historically, the the first vaccine program, if you can even call it that, that was out there, is like more, literally more than 500 years old. Wow. There are reports of strategies that were used for smallpox. Uh, we wouldn't have called it vaccination at that point. But there was enough known about how smallpox worked just by observing the progress of a person's disease and what happened to people who recovered uh, to make some guesses. And so people attempted to induce immunity against smallpox, you know, the earliest reports are like a thousand years ago. Wow. And so that was, you know, that was sort of a pandemic level situation the way COVID-19 is now. But as we move into the 20th century, we see a lot of childhood mortality and a lot of childhood harm from diseases like diphtheria and polio and whooping cough. And so the people who are most at risk for a lot of vaccine preventable illnesses are people that are under the age of five. So the timing of vaccine delivery is based on the time in your life when you're most likely to experience harm from that particular condition. So you'll give a kid a chickenpox vaccine mm -hmm. and you'll give an adult a shingles vaccine. Oh, okay. even though it's the same virus that right. causes both. Okay. So you wouldn't give a kid the shingles vaccine because a child generally is not going to get shingles. Mm -hmm. And an adult who's likely already had chickenpox, you want to help make sure that they don't get shingles. So with the COVID-19 vaccines, the population that was having the most and continues to have the most significant harm are the elderly. Mm -hmm. So people over age 65 really have a much greater chance of having long-term consequences or of dying from a COVID-19 infection. So that population was really the first target for vaccines. And that's why as soon as emergency use authorizations came through, the first people in line were the elderly and healthcare workers, you know, the elderly because they stood the greatest chance of suffering harm and healthcare workers because you need your healthcare workers to stay healthy to take care of everybody else who's getting sick. Is there such thing as being vaccinated too much, I guess, in a sense of like taking multiple vaccinations at one time? Yeah, that's actually a really common concern for a lot of parents that you know, if you look at the last 40 years of vaccine practice, we've gone from vaccinating kids against maybe five or seven different organisms to vaccinating a typical kid who goes through a full vaccine vaccine series without modification against 12 or 15 or 17 different organisms. And so a lot of folks look at that and say, well, aren't we overwhelming their immune systems? But interestingly, the historic vaccines that were used included lots more stuff like whole viruses that had been inactivated, whole bacteria that had been killed. And it kind of like elephants stampeding through your immune system, right? With every vaccine, the new vaccines are much more targeted. Uh, so if you think of like, if you think of a virus, 
like I like to close my eyes and picture a virus or a bacteria as it's, they're really bumpy. So if you picture like a basketball with a bunch of spikes sticking out of it, but every spike has a completely different shape, your immune system is not going after that whole virus. It's zooming in and picking off one of those little spikes. And maybe not even a spike, maybe just a portion of that. So modern vaccines typically are going to approach immunization by grabbing just the part of the virus that the immune system responds to, thus eliminating all of these other pieces that could cause a stronger immune system, immune response. So it's going to make the immune response more focused. But what that means is that my kids who are getting current vaccines, they're getting vaccinated against far more organisms, but they're getting exposed to far fewer what we call antigens. Um, so honestly, my kids have had an easier time going through their vaccination series for all of these organisms than I had going through a vaccination series for a much smaller number because they're so much more targeted than they used to be. Right. And I guess another question that I have that's kind of moving actually off topic in a sense is looking at home remedies to like fight infections or diseases. I don't know if, how much you know about that or like like for instance vitamin c like how important is like i guess or how would taking or just personal things that you could do to protect yourself like affect like your chances of being infected by any type of disease so you know adequate nutrition adequate sleep getting exercise those things all contribute to having you know, what we might call a healthy terrain in your body. And it's not going to guarantee that you don't get sick, but it's going to ensure that the machinery of your body is working as well as it possibly can. Okay. You know, we also have learned that viruses like SARS-CoV-2 don't necessarily discriminate mm, in this okay. case. So... While there's nothing that you can actually do that will guarantee that you won't get sick, you know, having a healthy lifestyle, you know, having access to adequate nutrition, those are all really important factors to maintaining a functional immune system that's going to help you as best as possible. Um, you know, I haven't looked at this in a while, but early on, there were some very interesting studies that looked at the relationship between specifically vitamin D levels and prognosis for SARS-CoV-2. And that's all I'm going to say is that there were studies because mm -hmm. it was interesting. Right. Um, and this happens all the time, right? Like we had early studies on chloroquine, which is normally used to treat malaria uh, as a potential intervention against COVID-19. And the clinical studies have borne out the fact that mm, really it works against parasites, but not against this virus. Same thing with ivermectin, which is the deworming agent that's used in veterinary practices. It also can be used to treat certain types of parasites in humans. But biologically, a parasite cell looks like a human cell where a virus is a completely different beast. Right. And I think I actually should have started with these two, like, I guess back-to-back -back basic questions. What is a virus and what is our immune system? 
Oh, those are great questions. So the New York Times, uh, there are a couple of science writers I love from the New York Times. And of course, their names escape me right now. Yeah. But they've described a virus as bad news wrapped in a protein. Mm, yep. Okay. So a virus consists of instructions for making more virus. Um, and it's the same kind of instructions that we have in our cells. Uh, you know, either DNA or RNA. And then it's wrapped in some kind of a protective coating. So you have instructions, you have protective coating. And the main part of the protective coating is usually made out of protein. And so a virus, we call a virus an obligate intracellular parasite. And that's a big mouthful. But a parasite is simply something that exists and replicates or copies itself in the world at the expense or at the harm to the harm of another organism. So it's a parasite, meaning that it's going to harm its host. And intracellular means it has to get inside a host cells. It can't do its job on its own from outside a cell. And obligate means that it has to do it that way. It has no choice. So if I took a test tube containing viruses and handed it to you, and you walked away for a week with that tube and you came back, you would have exactly the same number of viruses after a week because they can't copy themselves on their own. But if I gave you a tube with viruses and the appropriate host cells, two days later, you would have a lot more viruses and you'd have a lot less host cells. Um, so viruses come alongside our cells, get inside them and steal their resources to make more copies of themselves. So getting sick from a virus usually involves a combination of the virus harming your cells, because when your cells get harmed, your immune system kind of notices. And then most of the symptoms of sickness are actually side effects of your immune system eliminating the virus in many cases. You know, there are some viruses and bacteria that directly cause harm in other ways, but a lot of the symptoms that you feel, it's because your immune system has noticed that there's something foreign in your body. Okay. Yeah. That is interesting. So our immune system is basically basically like our helpers to, in order to like combat viruses. Yeah. So your immune system your immune system has like levels of barriers. So your immune system has physical barriers to infection that help prevent infections from even getting in. So your skin, for example, is a fantastic barrier to infection from the outside. This is why we, you know, we want to put antimicrobial agents on cuts and why burns can be so serious because they represent a a portal where things that are outside can get inside, right? So we have physical barriers. We also have chemical barriers. You have enzymes and proteins in places like your saliva and your tears that can actually destroy potential pathogens before they infect your eyes or before they get swallowed. Your stomach is really acidic, which is why you can eat things without getting sick from you know, bacteria that might just be hiding out there most of the time. And then we move on to the more advanced barriers of the immune system, which are your white blood cells. And your white blood cells play a variety of roles from kind of first responders who show up 
and they try to contain the situation and make sure it doesn't get worse. And then we have the kind of advanced responders, which are your B cells and your T cells. So when we think about antibodies, and we hear about like antibodies getting produced in response to the vaccine or the virus. Um, those are part of the advanced parts of your immune system. And those get recruited and developed if the first responders can't take care of the situation on their own. Wow, that is definitely amazing to know that like, the things that happen in our bodies, especially like your point of like bringing up that the side effects we experience is our body trying to fight, you know, the disease or the infection that we have. Um, but I think that's all the questions that I have. And this has been really enlightening to learn about how vaccines just work and on a general level before we even get into like, how do COVID vaccines work? So thank you for joining me today. You are most welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining me in this episode of Catch COVID. I hope you enjoyed it. For more information about vaccines, you can visit formycommunity.net or cdc.gov.